listeners, welcome to another edition of Video Marketing and Mayhem. I'm here with John Cooksey. He is an entrepreneur who lives in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I've known John for over 20 years. And uh, John, the, the whole reason why we have you on the podcast is talk about uh, how you use video. So the, obviously the show is called Video Marketing and Mayhem. So let's talk about your journey uh, using video as a marketing tool. Uh, tell me... Um, how did you get started in video production? I was a crowd involvement disc jockey who went around the New York, New Jersey area and did these things. And I had taken a lot of video in uh, high school. I'm sorry, in college, some in high school. And when I was out at the DJing these weddings, I saw these guys doing an awful job with video time after time again. I could tell how they were standing, where they were standing, what cameras they had, that I could do a much better job. So I just started trying to market myself to people who were getting married and get got into wedding video. So, John, um, tell me, what what year was that? What year w- did you start your own business and get into the business and realize that you wanted to be into the uh, uh, getting into the video production business? I think it was a 1985-1986. So it all began with uh, me finding friends and friends of friends who were getting married and saying, yeah, I'll go ahead and videotape your wedding service or reception and then don't worry about it. I'm not going to charge you because I'm getting started in the business. And I got a lot of resistance because people thought it was very tacky to you know, film a wedding. It was like, wow, we can't have camera in there. You know, it's very weird. Not ex- so who did you, who did you, who did you get the pushback from? Who, like when you say people found it very tacky, you're not your clients, obviously that are paying you to do it. No, see um, the first who- one I was free. I couldn't even give it away. <laughs> people didn't want it. They're like, uh, filming a wedding. It was almost like violating personal space or something. People were just, didn't see the value of it. Even for free. So are you saying that you had so much passion doing this, you, you were willing to do the first one for free? Yeah, I needed a demo. Okay, and sure. how did that work out? Tell, bring me back to that day where you went out there with, uh, were you shooting uh, with an extra sketch? Yeah, PK956 from Panasonic. I had actually bought it from my dad who never used it. I said, let me buy that from you. And, you know, because I thought I wanted to get into the video field before that. And... Um, and and it was a VHS recorder uh, with a camera, separate. You know, the battery packs last tw- lasted twenty minutes, so I had to have a lot of batteries. I think I. And how much did that? How much did that cost you to get into the video business back then? Five hundred dollars, but then I had to buy an editing deck, and that was another thirteen hundred bucks. Then I bought the titler, and then that was a thousand bucks. So you know, just kept adding and adding up. How did you turn it into, uh, so you volunteered in the beginning, but how did you turn it into getting paid for what you do? I think the way, I also went around to dance companies, and I don't think I had a demo the first time, but they hired me anyway. And I just turned it around uh, into a business by letting people that I knew know that I was doing it. And I went to other people in the video business and said, look, if I'm too busy, I'll go ahead and uh, send work your way, and I hope you'll do the same with me. Got a lot of bu- business that way. I was like, come on, buy. I'll do your titles for free with my titler. They love that. Okay. 
why like how when did you start to realize that you can make money at this and actually turn into a business tell tell me quickly um when you when you finally realize like oh my god people people want what i do and they find it attractive what i do and was it mainly weddings well uh it was weddings and 40th anniversary parties and um little promotional videos so people were using slideshows at the time sometimes and i was like you know what what instead of a slideshow like do you do slideshows yeah but why not do a video that kind of thing i'd get some local nonprofits that were trying to promote themselves and Luckily, video was starting to be pretty big, and the idea of having a promotional video was, you know, starting to take off. I would do a band for free, and then another band would hear that I did this band, so then I would go from free to $300, you know. And, and what, what year was that you were doing this? Uh, late 80s, you know, 87, 88, 89. So now you're... you're you're recording weddings and people are paying you how many weddings a year uh did you do and were you able to survive off of that money yeah i was doing 25 weddings a year and i would still do a few disc jockey jobs so i had both going at the same time and uh i was able to survive because you know it was about twelve hundred dollars a wedding and you know that brought me twenty eight thousand dollars and then the dj business brought me another you know fifteen thousand bucks so when did you decide to go full-time, and what did you do, if anything, going full-time? Did you go full-time, or did you pivot your business? Tell me your journey. Oh, you know, I pretty much kept the DJ thing on the back burner, but uh, occasionally I would um, do one of those, but I would just be knocking on doors and making calls. Hey, I noticed you have a graduation coming up. Who's in charge of the graduation ceremony? You know, we can take care of your uh, video needs for the graduation and that kind so of while thing. You were, while you were doing this, what were your biggest challenges? Uh, the biggest challenges definitely was syncing up three cameras. I like to make money doing stuff that other people can't do. And syncing up three cameras in the late 80s was really tough. Because on a wing and a prayer, sometimes it wouldn't sync up, but I always managed to get all of them mixed up, mixed in. So, so describe to me why you'd want to sync up three cameras. I don't get it. Are you shooting this stuff live? Yeah, you don't want to go edit three cameras later. There was not the technology to do that. It would take you forever with the old technology. And you would lose an extra generation. You'd lose quality. So you didn't want to lose quality and you want to get it done at the job. So you had three cameras and a mixer and a recorder and audio mixers. So everything back then obviously wasn't digital. It was all tape-based. Yep. Yeah, every well. time you made a copy, then another copy, and another copy, that would call, that was called generation loss. By the time you finally delivered your final product on a VHS tape, the quality was beat up. So your decision was to shoot it live with three cameras and sync the three cameras up, which means each camera blends into the other one as you back and forth. So in other words, you might have a wide, medium, and close-up of all the same scene at the same time being able to switch live. Yeah, there was no redos. You know, it'd be like a children's theater. You'd have the wide shot, then you cut with the close-up, and then you cut back to the wide cut to the side shot. Sometimes I did two, sometimes I did three cameras, but it gave me that unique selling proposition that other people didn't have. Fantastic. So, so after you, uh, take, take me past your wedding career. What did you do after that? I was at a party in Stanford, Connecticut, and this guy that was in 
industrial videos, and he was doing them for military outfits and large corporations, said, man, if I wasn't doing what I was doing and, and I was just starting out like you, I would get into doing instructional training videos. There's this guy in Hot Springs, Arkansas, that has a newsletter called Video Marketing Newsletter. You could take old TV equipment and, you know, repurpose it and set up a studio in your home and just talk about things that people need to know about it. And they'll pay 30 or 40 bucks, 35 a tape. And that's exactly what I did. I followed. So you got got motivated from somebody who, uh, in a sense, said, hey, look at instructional videos are something that people will pay for. Do you remember the gentleman's name? Yeah, Bill Myers. Yeah, I was just about to say Bill Myers, yeah. So, so I'm now Bill Myers was was Bill Myers was a mentor of yours, but also if I remember correctly, uh, Bill Myers produced a newsletter that people subscribe to and basically he was a very uh, advanced entrepreneur. This is when people are like what's an entrepreneur? It didn't even exist because everybody had a regular 9 to 5 job. Um, and that's risky. Would you say that's risky to do something like that, to kind of just rely on yourself for an income? Well, um, I don't know. I just, I'd always wanted to rely on myself. And I should say I was at that party and a guy said, I'm subscribing to this newsletter out of Arkansas that talks about this stuff. And I got really excited about it. And YouTube is probably one third of what we were doing then, which is instructional training, and it's free. Now, did YouTube, did YouTube even exist back no, then? I don't no. even think it existed. No, but this was like the precursor to YouTube. I made a my first video. I probably made fifty thousand bucks from profit. So your very first <clears> video that you made, and tell me about what that video was. Well, I you know Bill Myers said place classified ads in a few different places for different ideas you had. I did, and the one idea that took off the most was digital mixers, uh, audio video mixers, not audio, uh, digital video mixers. So there was a lot of demand to find out how these new things worked. And I did an instructional training manual and showed things that weren't in the training manual that I think... Now, John, why wouldn't the manufacturer produce their own video? I don't get it. In other words, you took it upon yourself to find a product that is a AV switcher for the video market and wasn't it risky to go out and just produce this video? Didn't you think to yourself, hey, the manufacturer is probably going to produce a video on how to use this device? But apparently they didn't. No, it was Panasonic. They didn't really have videos because they would, if they did a video, they'd have to put it in the case. It would cost more money. You know, it wasn't like today, oh, we're just going to do an online video. Part of the reason online videos are so popular is because somebody can make one and upload really quickly. Back in the days, you needed some fancy equipment from a studio. You had to pay 50 bucks an hour. It could take a month to get it done. I could do it in my home within a couple of weeks for a few hundred bucks. I figure if I sold 30 copies, I'd break even. So I would say that's using the power of video. It is this form of, of marketing. It's a, it's a way that you started to make really good money. And that was off of one single uh, program or tape, if you want to call it, like an instructional tape, and you said the profit was $50,000 off of one video. Take me through the rest of your journey of producing producing additional videos. How did that bloom into uh, other things? Well, I did a volume two, so maybe together between volume one and two was probably $70,000 over a couple of years by the time all said and done. 
And were you amazed at the money that you were making at this? Were you like, I can't believe them? You know, I I don't have to work for the man. Well, I developed I, I, de I developed a mailing list of all these people that were the mom and pop videographers to sell more videos to. One on weddings, one on how to get good supplies and different stuff, one on lighting. And I think a year or two into it, about two years into it, I'm like, I'm sitting at home teaching to 25 different people or however many I was selling that day or 20 different people today. And I didn't have to leave my house like that. That felt good. I was like a teacher to different people. And I threw a catalog or newsletter in my own newsletter that had new products. We were selling cables, wireless mics, whatever. And so that felt good after a couple of years to go, wow, I can literally not leave my house, not produce anything and still have income coming in. So you said you didn't have to leave your house. Were you the only guy that was doing this? Were you just a one-man band through the whole entire operation? I was probably one of the most successful guys at a small level in the United States doing technical training videos because I'd whip them out pretty fast. And, I mean, there were people doing technical training videos for large corporations, but I'm talking about taking a product from some other company and doing a training video on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So who was your? So what year was that, and who was your competition? Uh, early nineties. You know. And did you did you have competition? I didn't have competition in my area uh, until a few years later. Digital training videos for videographers and stuff. I had a few years. There'd be a few others out there, ones on how to do weddings, but nothing that competed with me. So what was the the. The, the biggest success in doing that type of business? The biggest success is developing a mailing list that you can then send out a brochure or information on yet another video or another product that you sell. Okay, why was that important? So did you, did you sell other products? I sold other products, you know, wireless mics. And it was important because if somebody called up back in the days, they called you on the phone. And said, yeah, I'm interested in this wedding videographer's tape. I've heard it's really good. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, what kind of battery belts do you guys? Oh, I'm going to get a battery belt soon. Uh, or, you know, you'd say, if, if they said, oh, I have a battery belt and everything for my light. And I said, oh, you have a wireless mic? Yeah, I'm not happy with it. Well, we have a mic that doesn't have that kind of hiss that you have in yours. Uh, have you heard of this mic? So you'd be able to upsell them and then throw in the catalog or pamphlet and that was free to throw in. You didn't have to mail it because they're already buying from you. So if I was doing 12 orders a day, I had 12 free sets of postage to mail out to people right. that have already bought something from me. So you were doing all this by yourself, correct? Mm, my wife was doing the accounting and packaging. Then as it got bigger, we hired somebody 20 hours a week or 15 hours a week. And so you started to have employees, correct? Yeah, yes. Okay, and so um, was this more of a hobby to you or was this an absolute business that you sat down and worked your numbers? Oh, we were making money at it. No, we were making money. It was, you know, we'd sell three tapes a day. That would profit us, you know, close to $90. And then, you know, uh, maybe we'd sell a wireless mic would profit us another 50 you know. So I was making you know, 140 a day and it's cheap to live here. And it was growing every month or so. And I was doing new videos every month. So it didn't really worry me that I wasn't making much because every month was 
better than the last month as a rule. Every two months, we're better than the last okay. two months. So as you know, the, the, the podcast is called Video Marketing and Mayhem. Tell me some mayhem. What were your biggest disasters? What was it with a client uh, issues or somebody bought a tape or what was what was the biggest thing uh, that uh, either set you back or was a financial disaster? Maybe there wasn't any. Maybe there wasn't any mayhem. But in all businesses, there's always something. Well, two things that stick out are. After about three or four years, you know, we would get pretty good employees and it's easy to have a good team of three or four people sometimes. But then when you get to like five, six, seven, eight, you're like really need someone in there and it's really busy. And so someone at work goes, well, my sister's friend needs a job. You're like, bring her in. And and she'd be okay, but then she'd end up being a problem. Had I to do it again, I would have said, okay, well, she needs to go through an interview process with everybody else. And I would have been stricter with the interviewing and I would have been much quicker to let someone go by simply going, look, it's not working out. Maybe you can try back with us in a few months, but you got personal problems, you know, uh, so we're going to have to let you go. I was scared to do that. I wouldn't be scared today because you would give somebody two or three chances and you still have to let them go a few months later. So that was no, that was was part of the, I guess, part of the mayhem of, of running a business. Were there any video issues or is there anybody that said to you hey i don't see the value in what you're doing and you had to return tapes excuse me my from dog is barking in the back from what i from what i remember you had a, a long successful run in making these videos what was the name of your company at the time elite video and where were you based out of uh just here in hot springs arkansas we moved because it was cheaper than the east coast and cheaper to live here so why not you know so so tell me about some of the products you sold, how you help people, and what was your big, biggest successes in these products that these obviously these products were products that helped to produce video. I think it's hard to say because for the more I sold products, the more it took me away from doing instructional videos. So it was a different way to make money. But if I had asked myself, if I had just stuck to instructional videos, looking back, I probably would have made the same amount of money. But it was fun to get all that video gear in that you were selling. If you need a wireless mic, I had 26 on the shelf. I could just grab one. Or if I needed a cord, like I had tons of cords. I had a, I don't know, 2,000 square foot basement just t- full of whatever we needed. And that was that was cool. And it was fun selling gear. People wanted to know about gear and buy gear. So it, it le- lent itself to, you know, selling gear too. So at, so at any point, did you do this because you're like, oh my God, this is so much fun? Or to yourself more as a businessman and you did it because of the money that you were going to make? Or was it more of a hobby? Like, like, or is it a mix of both? So, I mean, there's so many people that get into the video production business or they're, they're going to produce a video and they realize that in the end they have, they're penniless. Yeah. I mean, luckily when I shifted from event video, which is on weekends and before that I was doing DJ. So I had 10 years where I didn't have my weekends. I was so happy to get weekends back. That was great. You know, even if I made a, a look. Why was that important to get weekends back? Uh, because everybody else is doing stuff on weekends, 
and I wasn't able to go with them. Hey, we're doing this thing. We're going out on a boat. Nah, sorry. You know, when I was doing weddings. So we moved here. I gave up the weddings, you know, because they didn't make as much in Arkansas as in Connecticut. And um, uh, so let me just get back on my train of thought. So, uh, so it was great to just have weekends like everybody else did that worked. And I did enjoy the idea of selling equipment and did enjoy um, the videos. But what they helped is me have a change of pace. I wasn't doing all videos. So I was never bored. I wasn't doing all gear. But I'll tell you so this. I, would just, I agree. It's, it, sorry to interrupt you. It, it, it's important to enjoy what you do, but it's also important to pay your mortgage. So so tell me, so besides from the enjoyment, um, were you ever in a financial situation where you're like, what am I doing? Or was this always profitable? No, it was always profitable. Look, always I, profitable. I came, and here's why. I came into an area where if you had to get a credit card to charge people, a credit card machine merchant account, you had to jump through a lot of hoops. I mean, a lot of hoops. Like, you know, do you have an office? Do you have an office downtown? Can we take a picture? Can we have a couple of guys come by? You know, I mean, you know, can you fill out this dossier on what you do and how long you've been? Now you can get online in two minutes and start taking people's credit cards. Then it was like, you better be a serious business if you're going to take credit cards. And so that was a hoop other people had to go through that I, I went through and passed. I mean, today you pretty much can take payments on a cell phone. I know. That, well, the barriers to entry are so easy. And if you wanted to do video, you needed to spend about five or six grand minimum. So as I made money, I put it back into the business. But, but I, I can remember back in the day, some of the black boxes you'd see at NAB, which is a National Association of Broadcasters. Some of those black boxes just to make titles were eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars and as things changed, and that was just to make titles. That wasn't even the editing gear. So if you wanted to be at the, the level of a broadcast, you had to have at least, I'd say, half a million to a million dollars to be at that level. Right. But the thing is, you didn't need broadcast for VHS. So you could get in for five or six or $7,000. But see, now you can get in for a thousand bucks. So, you know, the barriers to entry are a lot lower. You could get in a credit card, you can get in 10 minutes, then you start charging people. Back then, I had the advantage because I did all the work to get the credit card machine, and you really had to sort of, okay, I'm, I'm, my, my business was out of my house, but you know, here's my business area, and he, you know, I'd make up a sign so somebody would come up the driveway and it would look more like a business, you know, and go in, like all this stuff because they didn't want you having a, a home-based credit card situation so that like alone gave you the advantage the six thousand dollars in gear that i was able to negotiate from his state sale uh, or ten thousand dollars for like five thousand you know all these things were giving me advantage so i didn't have to worry about people on my tail as much you know trying to do what i do but uh, i wasn't worried about the money because we crunched the numbers all the time there was such a high markup in instructional training videos you know, what are your costs, you know, a dollar fifty of VHS tape, you know? Right. And so it's not like food at a restaurant that goes bad. Like, so I was always like, yeah, if I can make 30 or 40 videos, sell them, then I'll know I'll uh, break even. We put magazine ads in Video Maker Magazine. That was like 1200 a month. And we negotiated that. So we always managed to make money. It was a growing business. And the barriers to entry are not as hard as they are today. I mean, okay. it's a 
it's no, I'm sorry. The barriers to entry back then were a lot harder than what it is today. So you get a lot more people going, I'm going to do a, you know, I'm going to do a training video or whatever. Yeah. I mean, some videos now are shot entirely on a, on a, a uh, smartphone. Right. So, but let's rewind back to, uh, your selling equipment. Where did that all end up? Well, we started making our own video processors because I met a guy that could design them, and we sell video processor and duplication. What is a video processor? It, somebody need that? Your colors of your video are off. They're not bright enough. They're too bright. They're too washed out. We fix that. So basically, that was a device back in the day when you had to edit videotape. So you yeah. put the tape in the source deck. You would uh, go from the source deck to your record deck. And in that process, you're just saying the colors would get kind of beat up and washed out and yeah, uh, and and affected. And so, what did this device do? What was this? So it, it, why it, do you why do you need something like that? It made it sharper, cleaner, clearer. It just restored the colors to you know a much better look than what normally people would have most of the time. Sometimes maybe you didn't need it. Most of the time, oh, it's too dark in this room. The camera's and back why, then. Why did, why, did, why did people f feel that was important to do it? Like, like. Oh, well, most of the time they would buy it for, for screwing up. There was black and white viewfinders back in the day. They didn't have color on the camera. So you go out, you forget to white balance, something come out really blue. Then they call me and go, I need to fix this. And I would use a reverse sales technique. I'd say, listen, don't buy it for just one job. It improves everything, so buy it for everything. You know, buy it for this, but but hold on to it for a month or so. We have a money back guarantee, and you're going to find you use it all the time. So it was one of the one of the many products that you sold that you made a profit on to create video. Yeah. However, I've learned the hard way that selling other people's items, which is what we did. This is before Amazon. Okay, Sennheiser microphones. Canon camcorders, you know, videonics, digital mixers, that stuff was pretty easy. But when you go to manufacture your own thing, there's a lot of major costs. Like you got to commit to buying 500 of this, you know. And uh, so the money coming in and out was very large numbers. I mean, large numbers. But you'd be writing, you'd be doing a, you know, $14,000 day and maybe writing $13,000 and, right. and, you know, for this and that. And so it's highly stressful to make your own product. Now, of course they have Indiegogo and stuff like that, but you look at how many of those people never get off the ground. So where is, where is elite video today? Um, I think there's a, web, a website still out there, but we just sort of faded into the distance and we had gone back. I sold the equipment part probably around the year 2000 and I was just getting burnt out by talking to 60 people a day on the phone. So, I mean, it wasn't just me. I had other salespeople, but sometimes I, I would keep track. That was about it. Uh, 60 a day. And then I sold that part of the business a good deal to one of my employees. And I went back to just doing training videos to make things simpler. I farmed out my shipping department. I'm like two bucks a video. You know, DVD, two bucks a DVD. You know, I'd sell 10, 20 a day. Somebody makes some money and I never had to see them or they would just check the orders online and send them out. And so we went back to training videos only. And Okay, so tell me some of the titles of the training videos and who would buy them. D3, Nikon D300 made easy, Canon, 
60D made easy, uh, all the, these cameras, people, mainly digital photographers or video people that were getting into DSLR cameras. It was new at the time, 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So they didn't know how to run a digital camera. They'd only used a film camera. So there was a big need for that. I just realized one day, I said, there's a big need for this. I'm just going to, I helped somebody do one. I said, why don't you do these? And he did one, didn't really want to do more than one or more. He's dragging his feet. So I said, well, I'm just going to do them if he's not doing them. And I gave a guy the idea and he didn't run with it. So then I went and ran with it for a good 10 years, you know. So you had a year selling these, uh, and uh, so during that period, what were you? Tell me about some of your biggest biggest successes. I mean, your success was you're making money, and again, you're not working a nine to five job. Maybe you're working more hours. Who knows? Yeah, the biggest success on that was number one. You could buy a robotic duplicator, DVD duplicator, for like three grand. And once again, you don't need that today, right? Nobody needs that. So the barriers to entry were higher. You know, like if you're going to sell videos, you better buy a $1,000 duplicator, in this case, $3,300 for a robotic one. And then you better get a DVD printer. You see how it left a lot of people out of the business, which was actually good because if you have less competition, you know, so. So obviously, again, um, you were, you had physical media. These were, this was a, a DVD that you put in a jewel case, which is a case that basically holds the DVD. And then you had the printing costs. Right. Shipping costs. So you tell me, I, you, know, you tell me what the. The printing costs and all that. And then the, you know, you had to print and, and then I had to employees duplicate them and all. And so there wasn't one big giant moneymaker. It was a bunch of small moneymakers. You know, I'd still be selling a little bit of equipment. I had the rights to sell a couple pieces of equipment. And, you know, even when I sold... Give me, give me an example. I, I think I kept the rights to sell the DVD duplicator and um, color corrector, you know, video enhancer... Uh, processor that we made but the guy so how, I, did you, how did you so, get the word out to your audience that you had all this stuff um oh you mean the uh you mean the camera training tapes the tapes the equipment how did you well everything's you different your... but and i say tapes when we went to dvds with internet was starting and we would have an employee go on um the news groups and say hey does anybody know if anybody's making a video for the Nikon D300. And then we would have somebody answer. <laughs> oh, about a day later. Yeah, I think Elite Video does. You know, here's their right. contact information. So in a sense, it was a form of guerrilla marketing. Oh, I think I got banned from like the Nikonian site or something forever. You know, but you sort of have to take things to the edge like that. You know, it was a brand new technology and you didn't want to be spamming. Hey, I have a video out. But this was a good way to do it. How else did you let people know what you did? Well, we put an ad in Photographer Magazine, whatever that one was. And okay. we put an ad in. And then, oh, this was the best way. eBay at the time was more like the Wild West. They have all these rules. But many of you guys remember 
from the late 90s, they were easy going. Yeah, you want to put up 10 of your product a day? Fine. So we would take our DVDs, and there was a section called digital cameras, and under that section, no, Nikon digital cameras. So right. under that section of Nikon digital cameras for bid, we would place our DVDs in there without a camera. Like, it was the wrong category, but nobody seemed to mind. So if you were looking at Nikon cameras, you would also see Nikon instructional video. After a while, they got really, gave you a few warnings, slap on the hands. We did it anyway. After a while, they said, you know, we're going to ban you if you keep doing that. So that really hurt our business because we made a lot of money for the average Joe looking for that camera, and he's stumbling over the training video. Great way okay, to advertise. Were there, other ways, were there other ways that you let your audience know of your new products and things like that? Yep, our catalog. You know, we had a catalog going out with a bunch of stuff in Tell it. Tell me about your catalog. What, would the, what did that involve? Well, that was a little bit before the digital training tapes because that was online. We sent out about 125,000 catalogs a year, about five times a year. We'd send out about 25,000 catalogs. Who wrote the content? Uh, me, my wife, and this guy, Scott Fisk, all worked on the color catalog. Three of us really nailed it. And so that that back then that was sort of like uh, certainly not the internet wasn't as robust as it is now. So the way you you advertise your audience to let them know what you did or have was through a physical catalog. So you had a you. I mean that's a lot of work. Tell me about that. Well, most people are like, who does your catalog? What's your group? Because any business would have like two people full-time on it, but we had three part-time people. I mean, they'd have two full-time and a big staff. People were saying, I can't believe you guys did this catalog, which is three of you. It looks so professional. So how we did that is you would get all these catalogs in the mail from, you know, I don't know, you know, Finger Hut and all these, you know, warehouse tool companies and color catalog, 50 pages. And we had a college intern I was paying them, and I just stuck a bunch of these catalogs on the desk. I go, I want this thin color paper because I know it's cheaper to mail out and it looks professional. Call the companies. Here's 20 of them. Ask them who they use. They all used this company called World Color out of Chicago. If your credit was good, you could get the catalog printed, and they'd hold off on billing you for 30 to 60 days, you know which was like getting a free catalog until you got the money in. The postage was 50 cents for a 48-page catalog, about 50 cents. So if you're sending out 25,000 catalogs, that's 12 grand right there in postage. It's about 50 cents a catalog to buy, so that's another, let's just say, 20, a buck a catalog to mail. So every now, time... Obviously, your, your business is growing and you're running a business. Did yeah. you sit down at any point... And look at your numbers, or you just kept on going without all, any all the blindly. all the time. We looked at our numbers all the time. Okay, yeah. all the time. And what did we did sell that today? All by yourself? No, no. My wife was accountant. We had an office manager that did more of the accounting. My wife and the office manager. So we'd go like this. What do we sell today? Oh, okay, and uh, when are those catalogs coming out? And uh, how many more of this are we getting in? And what's our what's our profit on this? We didn't have to look as hard as some business because the markup on instructional videos was so high compared to the manufacturing cost mm -hmm. that we knew that as long as we were selling those, we were covering our bills. And I would just do good markups on gear. I would be cognizant. Oh, yeah, we screwed up some time and lost, but 
If I knew I got a battery belt for a hundred bucks, I'm going to sell it for one ninety nine, and right. and then I know that the the catalog cost is costing us some, you know. So I always I keep on asking you about your big successes and your big losses. So these were consistent little successes. Am I right? Yeah, or I mean, one one thing that you did, you're like, oh my god, we killed it this year. I think you know we never ever like totally killed it, but we'd be on the cover of like video magazine with our you know, in the corner, but a color thing, hey, new broadcast video processor. Some of that time felt good. I mean, it felt good when you go into the office one day and go, holy crap, we got 60 orders going out today. You know, it was just like, wow. And I'd like to say in a way, you you think when you're in that, it's never going to end because you're just doing great. But there came in a time when we had our employee Christmas party. And, you know, normally we probably had with part-time and full-time, we probably had 12 to 15 workers. And we saw people at our, the Christmas party that we didn't even recognize. Like, I was like, people, when you're big enough where people start crashing your Christmas party, you've grown too big because then you need to get to that manager where you pull away and you don't even look at the business, you know, except from a macro standpoint. And we didn't want to go to that next level. It requires a whole another set of investment, you know, mainly a like really competent national based manager you know and right so we were just a little too small to want to make that jump you know um so i i think i've asked you is what became of elite video well we just faded away just in other words as of a couple Why years would you ago sell off the brand because everything had gone online at that time and there is no way uh. to do it and we really did sell off the brand a bit when Video Gear Shop, the guy that, that worked for us, took over that. So for a number of months, people were calling us and said, how do we get this? Oh, you need to go to Video Gear Shop. Here's their number. <clears throat> and uh, we happily did that. We actually working on something called Hot Springs Broadcast Network. I've done it for about three or four years part-time. This year, we started to sell ads. So it's a local television station online, if you will. We put out about six, eight videos a week and a weekly TV show, and we sell ads, and it's profitable for the first time, but it's taken us four years to get to this point. And then I, I do some real estate. I got my real estate license. I do professional drone work for the local auto place, plus um, Ashley Furniture and different places like that. So once again, a mix and mash of stuff, multiple streams of income, and I have some rental houses, you know. So between all of it, it makes a living. Okay, so let's 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 tell our audience. So again, I'm with John Cooksey, and John, uh, you live in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and you you you're now doing a online live television show. When I say television, basically, it's broadcasted over the internet, right? Because and so so um, why did you tell me take me through that journey? Why did you decide to do this and um, how does that generate revenue? Well, so I've been in video business since the late '80s, and when you get into doing training videos for digital still cameras, it's a routine. It's one kind of video, the same format every time. So I got sloppy as we went into the digital from nonlinear and we went into this one kind of video, I got sloppy at my 
electronic news gathering schools. Grab the microphone, grab the headphones, grab the tripod, let's run out there, get a shot. And so I really wanted to brush up on those. Just So I started doing free things around town because the local advertising promotion at the time was only promoting large businesses. And I knew that the secret of social media and online is promote those little things that nobody knows about. And so the, what time, what, what year did you start doing this? 2016. Probably a little bit at the end of 2015. Just start putting up videos. And, and you started doing this and you were not generating any revenue, correct? Right. Uh, you know what it did, though? It got people going, hey, can we hire you? to do?" It was a great advertisement for, you know. So at the time, did you realize, did you think like, hey, that's part of my sales funnel? Did you actually sit down and come up with strategy? Or you just started doing it going, oh, I'm creating awareness. I'm creating awareness, but I have to say the video business changed from when, you know, okay, so I'm making my own videos for years, right? Let's just do a timeline and say, I stopped doing my own videos in 92 and just doing training videos and stuff on a national level. So 2002, 2010, so for almost 15, 16 years, maybe longer, I wasn't doing videos for the general public. And I was in for a bit of a rude awakening, a few of them. Number one, back where I come from, Connecticut, 15 years before, 20 years before, if they said they were going to do a video, you handshake on it and you did that video. And if they were to back out, they would call you and go, I'm so sorry we have to back out. You know, I gave you my word, but I got something coming up in a month or so. We're going to have you do. So like 90% of the time, you know, by the time they agreed till when you got the contract to them, which could be four or five days later, you were always solid. And I get back in the business, I don't know, 2014, you know, which could, I mean, really, that could be like over 22 years. And I was in for a shock because you'd be, it'd be like, great, we want you to do these videos. Okay, great. I'll bring by the contract in a few days. And you'd bring it by and they wouldn't be there. And then you'd come by another day and they go, oh, yeah, we changed our mind. We're going to do something else. You know, and usually they would get their friend or somebody. to do, I don't know. And it was just a rude awakening for me that things are different, I realized, from Connecticut. But also people didn't have that honor of, hey, we agreed to do a video. We're going to do it. Also, there was less people doing videos. So the idea that you could shop it around. Was it ever too little too late where you, you, it, it happened and, you're, and you sort of like come up for air and you're like, oh, my God, I am in trouble here? Or did you see it coming? What do you mean trouble? Trouble with what? Financial trouble, like you're in debt or like you're, you're, you now um, have gone down a path where you're like, God, I owe all this money to people. No, I didn't have debt issues. Here's the reason why I didn't. When I started as a disc jockey doing crowd involvement stuff, my success was not the music I wanted to play, not the music I thought would go well, but that was part of it. But mainly it was what do people want to hear? What does that crowd want to hear? So I just translated that when I went into the video production business, which was what instructional videos do people want? And then when I did videos around town, or I still do, uh, I, I figure what what topic will people want to know about? And, you know, you just keep your eye on social media. So we have like 23,000 Facebook followers, probably 1,200 uh, 
1,500 Instagram followers and YouTube, we got similar. So, you know, you just give people what they want. I, the mistake most startup videographers, I'm going to do this. I want to do this kind of video. Well, when you get started, you got to do what you, th I don't care if it's legal video, real estate video, you got to do what there's a need for out there. How did you determine that need? You start listening a lot. <clears throat> for example, to, social media. Social media. Somebody goes, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm an art gallery owner and we're, we need to do this virtual art gallery walk thing for all the different ones. How much would you charge me or whatever? And then you go out to another one or today I'm doing real estate photos. Um, so these are these are indicators for you. Yeah. You know, if you do one, they're successful and they keep hiring you again. They're like, oh, do you do photos too for being in real estate? You know, I went out and did a seminar for real estate once, which got me known and then I went to the board of directors because I'm licensed and, and they were thinking of doing a video. And I said, you know, let's do three little videos for the for their end of the year you know, banquet. And and then other people see that and then hire me, you know, that kind of thing. But I'll do it cheap. Like, I don't know, I'm about two hundred and twenty dollars or something to go out and take some pictures of a house because, you know, with your I, I got the fancy Canon, but I can go out with my iPhone 10, enhance the images you know, and uh, and send them right up to their multiple listing for a couple hundred bucks. And I, have, I, I can go whenever I want. I don't have to meet the client there because I have key privilege, century key, automatic locks for real. It's different in every state, but basically as a realtor, I could just go into the house anytime I want, you know, if they tell me, yeah, don't worry about it. So I don't have to meet a client. I could do it on my own time. You know, and the money, though, can really be made if I get a few people, if it gets bigger, get a few people to do what I do and pay them 125 bucks and I, I take 100 you know, that kind of thing.